What is up, you guys? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. I am very excited about this week's guest, and I am also very excited to share this review with you of our fire starter supplement at Heart and Swell Supplements. This is from Imelda B. She says, I have about a week now that I started using this product, and I can tell how I've started to lose fat, but the best is when others notice. And then you know that it's working. I have more energy and I'm able to do more exercise than before. Definitely, I will continue to use and recommend this product. Thank you, Dr. Paul Saladino, aka Carnivore MD, for creating this project, this product. Um, these reviews, reviews like this, really are so cool. Um, our fire starter is a high stearic acid tallow, which we make from suet, the kidney fat from cows. I've talked a lot about the importance of stearic acid in the human diet many times. And it's so incredible to see people using something as simple as an animal fat, a true tallow from suet, which is high in stearic acid, and just doing that, seeing benefits in terms of mood, energy, and weight loss that are almost effortless because potentially of the nutritional benefits of this stearic acid in the human diet. It goes along with other things I've said in the past that there are unique nutrients in animal foods. There are unique nutrients in liver. There are unique nutrients in spleen and pancreas and testicle and kidney. And that is why we make desiccated organs at hardened soil. We make them from grass-fed, grass-finished animals raised in New Zealand on regenerative farms. And I go out of my way, we all do at hardened soil, to bring you guys the best desiccated organ supplements on planet Earth, probably in our galaxy to allow you to get more organs in your diet, because I believe this is the single greatest thing you can do, uh, or one of the single greatest things you could do. You could also cut out seed oils, but it's certainly a huge step. Cutting out seed oils and adding organs, man, those two things in your diet will change your life. It'll change your life. And a lot of people can't get fresh organs, don't want to eat fresh organs. That's why we make freeze-dried desiccated organs at Heart and Soil. You can check us out, heartandsoil.co to reclaim your birthright to radical health. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm excited about this episode. This is another controversial one. I would encourage you all to maintain an open mind for this episode. I released an episode two weeks ago with Patrick Moore in which we began to have a conversation around what we really know regarding climate change. This is an interesting foray into a realm that is new for me. I am learning and I am exploring because so many of these climate change questions, I believe, will be at the center of future policies, which may seek to limit our ability to consume the foods that we find most nourishing and evolutionarily consistent on this planet, that is meat and organs. The climate change narrative has been used so many times uh, already to take aim at these foods. And I believe if these foods are removed or that impediments are created to humans getting these foods, humans will not flourish in the same way that we are all designed to, that we all possess a, a birthright to flourish, to have radical health. So this is a really, really important conversation. I will be releasing a podcast probably next week with Seyfedeen Amos about Bitcoin and the importance of sovereignty with money and hard money. And this is all related because as we know in China, Regulations were placed on Bitcoin mining under the auspices, under the guise of quote-unquote climate change. But what do we really know about climate change? And what do we really know about how humans flourish on this planet? And should we consider a moral case for the use of fossil fuels? 
That's the argument that Alex Epstein, my guest on this week's podcast, seeks to make. And he makes a pretty convincing argument of that. He is the founder of the Center for Industrial Progress. He's a philosopher who argues that human flourishing should be the guiding principle of industrial and environmental progress. Like I said, he wrote a book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which was a New York Times bestseller, that argues that if we look at the whole picture, human flourishing requires that humanity might be using more fossil fuels and not less. I know it's a crazy concept, but hear me out. Listen to this interview. I think you'll find it very, very interesting. The book is widely praised, uh, and Epstein uh, won the most original thinker of 2014 from the McLaughlin Group. Alex has debated many people, organizations such as Greenpeace, the Sierra Club, 350.org, over the morality of fossil fuel use. He does not shy away from these. He's spoken at many college campuses, including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Duke, which is his alma mater, and spoken to employees and leaders of dozens of Fortune 500 energy companies, including ExxonMobil, Chevron, Philips, Valero, Enbridge, and TransCanada. So I think you'll really enjoy this interview if you approach it with an open mind, but please do so with an open mind and be very honest with yourself what you, what we, what you know about these issues and what you don't because we're all still learning. And I think it's really important to question many of the assumptions that we've all sort of taken as a given. So uh, enjoy this podcast, enjoy falling down the rabbit hole with me, and always question things, always ask questions, always seek your own answers, and flourish. So I also want to thank my sponsors for this podcast. They make this podcast possible. They allow me to do this work. They allow me to do research and ask these questions and bring you guys this information. So I want to give a shout out to White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. They are, as you know, a sixth generation family farm in Bluffton, Georgia that does grass-fed, grass-finished beef, goat, lamb, all kinds of other animals, turkey, guinea, duck, corn and soy-free chicken, which they did especially for us. You can get organs. They're an amazing farm in Georgia, really leading the way in the realm of regenerative agriculture and they deserve our support. Use the code CARNIVOREMD at whiteoakpastures.com for 10% off your first order, and you will get some of the best tasting meat and organs you've ever had in your whole life on your doorstep. You can even get suet if you want to render your own uh, fire starter, if you want to make your own tallow and fat, or you can just check us out at Hardened Soil, like I mentioned earlier in the intro. Also want to give a shout out to belcampo.com. They are an organic regenerative farm in Northern California doing grass feeding, grass finishing of all their animals. They also have regenerative operations in Uruguay, and they make some of the best Uruguayan steaks I've ever had. It is amazing. You can get 20% off your order with CarnivoreMD at bellcampo.com. And what I like about Bellcampo is they will ship to you on the West Coast. Uh, so if you're on the West Coast, check out Bellcampo. If you're in the middle of the country on the East Coast, maybe check out White Oak. We've covered the whole country with regenerative farms that you can get via the internet. You can all get access to this really, really important meat that will nourish us all. Again, these are things that are potentially threatened under the auspices or under the guise of uh, climate change. And how much do we really know about this? This is what I'm beginning to ask and fall down this rabbit hole. Um, I want to give a shout out to my sponsor, Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. You can use Carnivore MD there for 15% off. They make in my opinion, the finest blue blocking glasses on the market. They have really good construction. 
very high quality lenses. Andy Mant was on the podcast talking about light a couple months ago. You can check out that episode. Uh, he is the CEO of Blue Box, and um, they are going to be very useful to protect you and your circadian rhythms and your suprachiasmatic nucleus, that little special part of your hypothalamus from the blue and green wavelengths that will mess it up at night. And you can get them in clear. You can get them in orange if you want the Elton John look. I like the Jasper in clear. It makes me look like a hipster if I'm going out at night and leaving the house and being exposed to blue light after the sun has set. Check them out. Blue, blue box. B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Carnivore MD gets you 15% off. Last but not least, let's get checked. They are at trylgc.com. You can use the coupon code CARNIVOREMD to get some cash off your blood work. But as you guys know, I'm a huge fan of male hormones and they are dropping across the globe. Sperm counts are dropping, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, sleep disturbances. It's super scary. And you need to know what's going on with your testosterone. If you listen to the video I did last week or earlier uh, last week on my concerns with long-term ketogenic diets, I talked about how my testosterone went up when I included carbohydrates in my diet. You need to know where your testosterone and your sex hormone binding globulin are. Let's get checked. Makes it super easy. You don't even have to go see your doctor. You can get this at home. They make it super easy. So you can go to trylgc.com, use the code CarnivoreMD, get 20% off your order, and you can get your test online. It'll be delivered to you the next day. You collect your sample at home. You send it in, you get results in two to five days. If you're testing male hormones, you'll get testosterone, SHBG, prolactin, estrogen, free androgen index. They also do other things like CRP and other blood work. You can get all kinds of blood work with them. You can get lipids and fatty acids. Once your results are available, they're reviewed by a physician. A nurse contacts you for a consultation over the phone and you're all good. I really thought this was amazing and super uh, convenient you don't even have to go to your doctor. You can do it at home. I really believe in democratization of blood work testing. So that's trylgc.com front slash Paul and use the code Paul. I might've said carnivore MD earlier, but I think that the code is Paul. Hopefully the code Paul works for you guys. 20% trylgc.com, get tested, know what's going on with your blood work, and then take the steps to correct it and freaking thrive because radical health is your birthright. All right, guys, on to the podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we spread the message to other people. As a thank you, I will leave. I will be leaving. I will be mailing a signed copy of my book to one person every month who leaves me a five-star or who leaves me any review on Apple Podcasts. But I would appreciate your five-star reviews if you like this podcast. All right, guys, enjoy this podcast. Stay radical. Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, great to be here. You know, I've originally got interested in the idea of warming greenhouse gases, energy use around the conversation that many people have regarding meat and the production of meat. Mm -hmm. And then I got even more interested in it when I got orange pilled and I got interested in Bitcoin. And so, <laughs> and, and I've recently gone deeply down this rabbit hole and just Alice in Wonderland falling down this rabbit hole, thinking about this from so many different perspectives. So uh -huh. I decided to begin a series of conversations on my podcast with you as we talk about fossil fuels, the environment, and some of these other issues. So I'm curious. Be, would you just mind? I'm just curious. Like, what's can you summarize your journey? What like what you've been 
figuring out lately? So the beginning of it is the notion that cows are destroying the environment, right? Mm -hmm. Cow farts are destroying the environment. Right. And if you consider even accepting the notion that carbon dioxide is a significant greenhouse gas, which is hopefully something we will touch on in this podcast and actually mm-hmm. put that into the proper context. Mm-hmm. Even assuming, with, based on the assumption that carbon dioxide is harmful for the environment, which is not something that it should be assumed, but when you look at the way that life cycles can be done with cattle mm-hmm. who are raised regeneratively, you can say, oh, they're carbon negative or they're carbon neutral, right? The way that they can sequester carbon into the soil in a regenerative farming practice, they can be carbon negative or they can be carbon neutral. But that still is predicated on the fact that carbon is harmful or that the amount of carbon that humans are generating is significant within our biosphere, within the ecosystem. Right. And, and, and also and, significant enough to be the number one priority in the world, which it, it currently holds, that status. Exactly. Exactly. And then I got interested in Bitcoin, and I will release a separate podcast with Saifedean, who you know, Mm-hmm. Talking about Bitcoin, and I'm interested in personal sovereignty and central banks and inflation and the ability of humans to possess a currency that is potentially deflationary, that is hard money, as economists would say. And then China takes all Bitcoin mining and makes it illegal within their borders under the auspices or under the premise, under the sort of ostensibly because Bitcoin is bad for the environment, right? Quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And I think many of us look, you know, look kind of sideways at that and go, I think Bitcoin is bad for your communist regime and your country, and you're using the environment as an excuse to outlaw Bitcoin mining, something that much like, as we will discuss in this podcast, much like good, cheap, uh, steady energy can give a higher quality of life to billions of people on the planet. Mm-hmm. But China's outlawed all Bitcoin mining under the premise or under the under the notion or behind the notion that it is bad for the environment. And I fear that many of the things that I care about will be regulated, potentially in the United States and other countries, under the guise um, of the notion that it is bad for the climate. And so I thought, well, I just really want to understand what all of that means and Mm -hmm. why why we are making these decisions as a government. And... As I've fallen down the rabbit hole, this is just all going to be very quick because I know we want to get into more detail on this. I've come to question the notion that humans are producing a significant amount of carbon dioxide that is actually creating meaningful warming on the planet. And again, this is not a we will we will talk about that on this podcast, but there's going to be many more podcasts that will dig into that more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also questioning the notion that. You know, as you state in your book and your work, that that fossil fuels are entirely evil, that they're the spawn of Satan, and they should be completely eradicated from the planet. And, yeah, and furthermore, we'll get far beyond questioning that today. We're yeah, gonna, yeah. Gonna change a, that a lot. We will drive that home. So that is the that is the high level, and gotcha. and to make those statements without being to back them up is certainly going to, to trigger some people who are listening to this because everyone knows, Alex, that the carbon dioxide is horrible for the planet, and and that. We are killing the planet by doing this. Uh-huh. So, so where should we begin? I, 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 like I, I have a suggestion where we should begin. Let, yeah, I'm open to it. Because uh, 
and I think this will bring out like my primary background is philosophy. So I kind of started becoming an energy expert or I began that journey 14 years ago, but been interested in philosophy for a lot longer than that. And one thing about philosophy is, are we using the right terminology and are there any false assumptions or, or values that are irrational that are in our terminology? And I think that some of the terminology you're using in summarizing the mainstream view, you notice that the two things that come up are, or the three things that come up are the climate, the environment, and the planet, right? And it's talking about like, oh, is it good for the climate? Is it good for the environment? Is it good for the planet? I think most people just think, okay, well, that's a perfectly reasonable way of talking about things. 99% of people use that. And I think all of those terms are extremely uh, problematic. So let's, let's start off with the climate. What does it mean to be good for the climate? And I'll give you two perspectives. One is being good for the climate means that human beings uh, are less endangered by climate and derive more benefits from it. So you can think of it as the climate is livable for humans. So it means that we're safe, relatively safe from storms and floods and extreme heat and extreme cold, right? And also, you know, we can have it grow our crops and we can enjoy the sun, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's like a very livable climate. Um, so that's one kind of view, and that's my view. But that's not actually the dominant view. The dominant view is that a good climate is actually an unimpacted climate. So it's the idea that good for the climate means that we don't impact it. And you can see this in the view of climate so far, because if you look with common sense, if you, if you really ask anyone common sense, are we safer from climate than we were 200 years ago? They would have to say yes. And you look at statistics and it's just so dramatic. I mean, it's really, as I document uh, and others have started to document, you know, we're 50 times safer in terms of the death rate from climate-related natural disaster deaths. So, you know, storms and flood, heat, like we're so much safer from these things than we've ever been. And I, I believe I can tie that to fossil fuels. But in any case, whatever is causing it, the livability of climate today is far greater than it's ever been. And yet most people would say the climate has been destroyed. Well, how can something be destroyed if it's 50 times better from the perspective of human life? Because you're not evaluating it by the standard of human life. And so that's a lot of my work is what standard are we using when we're evaluating things? And so what standard are we using uh, when evaluating climate? You can think of it as we're using the standard of unimpacted nature. We're saying we're measuring things by how little we impact them. And I think that's an anti-human standard because impacting things is how we survive, how we flourish. We need to do it intelligently. We don't wanna impact things in a way that harms us on balance. But mainly, we do want to impact nature a lot uh, to benefit. And it, so you, what, what, exactly what I said about climate applies to environment and applies to planet. So I want a livable environment. I want a livable planet. I don't want an unimpacted environment. I don't want an unimpacted planet. And unfortunately, today, usually what happens is people are mostly operating on the standard of an unimpacted climate, environment, or planet, but they think it means a livable planet or climate or environment. And that's the, actually the genius of the modern environmental movement. That's a very anti-human movement. What they do is they package the idea of an unimpacted environment with a good environment. And I, I'm trying to pull apart that package because you need to massively impact your environment, even to enjoy the parts you don't want to impact, like to enjoy the Grand Canyon. Think about how much you have to impact the world to make the roads and to be productive enough to free up the time so you can go contemplate, quote, unimpacted nature. So I would just start there and say, we have to be clear 
is our you can put it as is our goal to advance human flourishing or is our goal to eliminate human impact and those are contradictory goals and i think most of the perspective today is this view that we should be eliminating our impact but that's not a view that anyone can actually justify so it always has to be hidden and disguised and and packaged together with actual human flourishing. And I'm saying there's no reason to package those together. Let's separate them and let's get rid of this. It's, a, it's like a primitive anti-human religion and let's just get rid of it. I think that's a, a good way to put it. It's a primitive anti-human religion. It, there's this subtle undercurrent of the notion that it is immoral for humans to impact the environment, our yeah. climate, our environment. And, and yet that is something that we do, we must do at every turn, if we hope to survive as humans, right? Absolutely. And, and there are many in the space who have made careers. Uh, Bill McKibben is one in your book that you quote, and he calls himself or others a biocentrist. And there is this, I think when people understand this, they will see this. But, but I should say somebody else called him a biocentrist. I don't know that he oh. uses that term, but he, he certainly is, whether he uses it or not. Um, and but that's that's even like a generous term. I mean, it's basically anti-human, right? But the idea is that oh, all of biology. It's basically like I value all of nature equally, which anytime they say like I value billions of things equally, it just means they want to sacrifice you. Uh, and so that's basically what's going on there. And I think that everyone listening to this is listening to it on a device and and must accept the fact that in order to live lives as humans, we have chosen to impact the planet and. I like the way you frame it in your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which is that we're not trying to destroy the planet. We understand that there is a balance between our impact on the planet and ecosystems, but we must impact ecosystems. We must impact the planet in order to live on it in a way that allows humans to do things that everyone agrees are valuable, whether that's create art, whether that's create healthcare and hospitals, or live in buildings that are somewhat protected from the elements, or you know, grow food that can feed our families and create healthy life so that we can do anything in life that we deem to be valuable. And so I think that's great. And the same with the climate. It's like, how do we affect the climate in a way that increases human flourishing, right? Do you want to take off there? Yeah, well, so you can think of it as, from a human flourishing so you can think of what you want to do to an environment is you want to improve it. Like, so you want to make it more conducive to your goal, which I'm saying is advancing human flourishing. So if I think about my office environment, I don't think about, oh, I got to protect the environment. I better not impact it, right? That's crazy. It's like, I want to improve this. Uh, so I want it to be clean and I want it to have, you know, a lot of capability, you know, office and it's just, I want it to be a good environment for whatever purpose it is. And so if you think about climate, um, you want to ideally, we'd be able to just impact it directly which we're not doing nearly as much as people think uh, inadvertently. So CO2 is a sort of inadvertent way of impacting it. We can talk about that. But what we'd really love to do is, oh, Hurricane Harvey is coming. Let's neutralize that. And you know, I live in uh, I live in and pay to live in Laguna Beach, California, which is one of the nicest places I think in the world and certainly in the United States. I'm like, how many people would like to manipulate their climate so it would be more like Laguna Beach, California? That would be the mo like greatest wealth creation uh, imaginable. So if you look in the future for, and again, it's relevant, this is a primitive religious perspective. If you look like a future humanistic perspective, of course, at some point we're going to be able to do this. We should think it's not trivial. How do you do this and how do you manage and what's the role of the government and stuff, but you need to 
like we should at least aspire to it. And notice today there's no aspiration to make climate better. The, all the aspiration is let's not impact it. And so it does have this, this God type quality. It's like, oh, the climate. It's like, let's protect the climate. Let's not impact the climate. And it's just so perverse because climate is naturally dynamic. It's naturally dangerous, right? It's, and it's naturally diverse. So it's, you know, it's, it's changing all the time. It's, you know, even, even if it's a period of climatic stability, it's still like, it's still changing all the time with it. You know, your atmosphere around you is changing all the time in terms of just the weather around you. That's how we experience it. We experience this dynamic, certainly dangerous. And then it's diverse. It's all these different places around the world. So why on earth would you think, oh, the one that we had before we started improving our lives with fossil fuels, that one was great. And by the way, that happened to be a particularly cold climate, a little ice age. It was very unpleasant and people generally didn't like it. They liked it more in what's called the medieval warm period when it's warmer. In general, people like it warmer. So I just keep coming back to, are we focused on a livable climate or are we focused on an unimpacted climate? If you're focused on a livable climate, then generally you are very pro-energy because energy makes climate livable. And you also are very suspicious of the idea that CO2 is going to be a catastrophic force because CO2 is a fertilizing gas, which means more plant growth. And if you're meat eater, it means more animal growth. And if you, uh, and then it is also a warming gas, but it tends to warm uh, for various technical reasons at this stage in a fairly minor way. And it tends to warm more in the colder parts of the world at colder times, including colder seasons. So it's a pretty, and this has been known for a long time. So the early people who discovered the greenhouse effect actually thought it was going to be really good on its own, independent of the energy that came with it. And so if you think, okay, we've got this amazing source of energy that allows us to be so productive, to use machines to improve our lives. And the byproduct is thinking CO2, and it grows plants and it makes things warmer, particularly in cold places. So basically it's going to make the earth a little more tropical. Like, is that going to be an unlivable climate? Well, we all sort of pay to go to tropical climates, right? Like the, the, the climate refugees are all from cold to warm. So it's just, it shows you that the only thing that can really explain why this is, why stopping CO2, which means stopping fossil fuels, has become the number one moral issue. It's because of this ideal of an unimpacted climate. It has nothing to do with a livable climate. I was going to show this <clears throat> um, a little bit later. Let's see if I can, let's see if it'll let me do it. Um, I don't know. No, it's not going to let me do it right now. But there's now a you graphic. my in... interest. <laughs> it's a graphic from your book. Oh, um, okay. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> It's a graphic from your book, and um, it's just that uh, it, it shows this sort of uh, the way, and you reference this, and this is not controversial at all. This is accepted by climate scientists everywhere. It shows the amount of warming based on parts per million carbon dioxide. And right. the, point, the point you were making with this in the book and the point that I've heard other people make, and this is, again, this is not debated. It's just never talked about is the fact that when you get to CO2 at 300, 400 parts per million, which is where we are now, increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has a very minuscule effect on the, quote, environment, on the climate. It's when you are at much lower levels of CO2 that as you increase the amount of CO2 with parts per million, uh, or there is a quite steep effect on uh, the temperature within an environment. But that where we are now, 
increasing even to 500 or 600 parts per million, which makes environmentalists shit a brick, uh, doesn't really have a huge effect on our climate. And I love you're making these other points that it tends to, if it is going to impact the climate, it's going to make very cold areas a little warmer. And that amount of impact is hotly debated. It is not settled within climate science, is it? Right. And so, so yeah, let's talk about this point. So I put it, I have a, a new book uh, coming out in February, which I go into this in, in more detail, but you can't even get it on Amazon. So it's called Fossil Future. Um, I would just, by the way, if anyone's interested in my ideas, just go to industrialprogress.com and sign up on my mailing list because it's sort of embarrassing that you can't order this book. And there's actually a fake new version of the moral case for fossil fuels that isn't real that's currently being advertised on Amazon. So I apologize about that. It's the moral case for fossil fuels you can get, but there is supposedly an updated edition that was supposed to come out in late July of this year, which is, it doesn't exist. Uh, so anyway, just, just so people know, so just go to that website, industrialprogress.com. If you're interested in this, you want, I'll, then you'll know when the book comes out. Anyway, false. So I talk about this a bit in moral case falsehoods, but the basic idea is when you're talking about an effect, so you're talking about what, what kind of warming effect does CO2 have? You'll want to know the trajectory of that effect. So as you get more of something, so you can think of different things have different trajectories. So one possibility is, at, you know, every additional unit is like a, a super linear kind of effect. I don't know if people can see that, but you know, you'll see some, it's exponential as a form of that. It's not the only form of that, but you can have that kind of effect where like every new thing has more impact than the last. So that, that can be a kind of scary thing. It doesn't really happen much in nature in a sustained way for interesting reasons. But anyway, or you can have a linear effect where each new, so each new molecule of CO2 would have the same warming as the last. Or you could have a sublinear effect, which means that you get diminishing returns. And that's definitely what the greenhouse effect is. And as you said, everybody agrees on this. It's in all the equations. And it's even it's definitely in all the UN stuff, which I think is often very distorted. But what and the way it's expressed if you look at the literature they'll talk about climate sensitivity or equilibrium climate sensitivity and what does that mean that means they talk about how much warming occurs when you double the amount of co2 in the atmosphere well think about that and the idea is the same amount of warming occurs every time you double it so let's just to use round numbers like if you start at 250 and you go to 500 like if that's 2 degrees or whatever okay then 500 to 1000 is 2 two degrees and then a thousand to 2000 and 2000 to 4,000. So every, every time you increase it, you get diminishing returns and that's specifically a logarithmic uh, effect. And so when you have, and so the debate, and there is some debate over how significant it is. And then also are there other things that will compound it called feedbacks, but the, you know, you get the kind of extreme views. They talk about like three, four, five degrees Celsius. I find these very implausible for reasons I talk about in moral case, but even if you said, okay, we're going to have four degrees in the next 80 years. Okay. So that's about eight degrees, seven degrees Fahrenheit. Um, like that's way cooler than the planet has been for a lot of its history. So even if you believe that, it still doesn't justify this apocalyptic thing. It might justify, hey, let's figure out how to cool things. Maybe it's too fast. Maybe sea levels will rise. But if you look at sea level rises that are predicted, you're talking about a few feet, even that are predicted by the catastrophists. So again, it's not about really the evidence of, there's not any evidence of an unlivable climate. There's just evidence of an impacted climate. Again, if you want a livable climate, my belief is, we need to be using more fossil fuels because that makes climate livable for the wealthy world. It can make the poor world wealthy. CO2 is obviously going to have a lot of good impacts, uh, may have some 
uh, bad impacts, but the scale of any of those does not matter at all, in my view, in comparison to the value of the energy. And just one other fact that I think puts this into perspective is if you look at estimates of the history of the planet, people think, oh, it's hot. It's never been so hot. But no, it's 25 degrees Fahrenheit, 12 degrees Celsius colder than it was during many of its most lush periods. We have CO2 levels 10 times higher than today that we couldn't get to even if we wanted to. And so the earth was not burning up and it was a lot warmer. It was just more tropical and we we're the most adaptable species in history. So again, there's no justification at all for this catastrophism, for this apocalyptic thing. It's just a way at, at the level of thought leadership. It's a way for people who believe in the morality of an unimpacted planet to scare the rest of us who want a livable planet into pursuing an unimpacted planet. That's really what's going on. There is something that I talk a lot about, and that is context. And I talk a lot about context when we're thinking about evaluating things like low-density lipoprotein and human health and when we're looking at studies. And the way that things are framed changes the context. And so thank you for saying some of the points that you just elaborated, which are that so many of these climate arguments have been framed in a way that don't include all of the context, in my opinion. We are told it's the warmest it's ever been in 100,000 years, which is a false statement because you talk about the medieval warm period, which is often ignored or has been widely uh, sort of uh, discarded or diminished or deleted from the scientific record by questionable yeah, it's scientific... it's been canceled. Yeah, the, the, the medieval warm period got canceled. But there, if we think about the history of our planet... Uh, what, six, six billion years, five billion years, uh, there are... Four billion there are years, yeah. It's, four, it's, yeah. it's a long yeah. time. There's a long time, and there are many periods that we know from ice cores and other reliable indicators that all triangulate and that all seem to corroborate each other, but there have been periods with much higher levels of CO2 and much higher warming, and those don't even necessarily correlate. Right. Right? And... There has been life on the planet throughout all of it. And some would argue, you know, more biodiversity when the planet has been warmer. And so we've certainly seen a warmer planet that did not destroy all life on this planet in the past. And mm -hmm. we've certainly seen high levels of CO2 and low levels of CO2. And that's never talked about by these environmentalists. They, they completely use the context of their advantage and will say, well, just look at this one time period. And, and the way these curves are drawn, the more I went into it, just made me more and more frustrated and thinking there's clearly an agenda here below the surface. I'm sure you understand. You agree yeah, so that's, that's a good – it's definitely – and particularly if you think of the people who know better. So as I said, I, I really do think it's accurate that at the, the level of thought leadership, so the people who really know something and are thinking about this and are conscious about this, I think it really is about pursuing this anti-human goal of an unimpacted uh, planet in general, and then an unimpacted climate in particular. And then knowing that that's not a goal that's actually appealing to many humans, if because if you know what that is, that's not a place anyone wants to live, but getting people on board with that goal by saying, no, if you eliminate all your impact, you're actually gonna have a really livable planet and a livable class. So you just get rid of fossil fuels and everything will be great. But then you notice, wait a second, they also are opposing nuclear. They're also opposing hydro and they're also opposing solar and wind. You know, it's really hard to build solar and wind. It's hard to do. It's, it's not very effective anyway, but it's hard to do the mining. It's hard to build the transmission lines. Um, it, it's hard to just 
build the things that take up a lot of space. And what do you find to them? You find green opposition. You find people saying, no, this has too much impact. So you can see concretely, everything has too much impact. That's really the reason for it. It's not about CO2. It's just about impact to being evil in general. And so that's why I say the goal is eliminating human impact. And the ultimate ideal is an unimpacted planet. And the clearer we are about that, the more it makes sense of all of their positions. Like, otherwise, it makes no sense. Why are they against nuclear? Nuclear is the most cost-effective, scalable way to produce reliable, basically zero-carbon electricity. The modern environmental movement is the main enemy of nuclear. Like, doesn't make any sense. But if you think of an impact, yeah, they think, oh, it's unnatural. We shouldn't be splitting the atom. We shouldn't be creating this waste, et cetera, et cetera. Radiation is bad. But wait, radiation's ever? No, but if we create it, it's bad. So one other perspective on this, I call it human racism, because you think everything the human race does is bad and everything the non-human world does is good. And th that is really, it's at the core, it's not even, it's not even as good as, oh, I just want like everything to be the Grand Canyon, as you would imagine at Unimpacted, which it's not. It's just hating humans. Like it's not about a love of, because to love the rest of nature, you have to think of who's enjoying it, right? And the idea is you don't want humans to enjoy it. So it's really this idea, no. It's not, not a love of the rest of nature. It's just a hatred of humans. That's, that's the psychology at the core of it. I don't think most adherents have that, but that is the, I think the, a lot of the leaders do. And that is, that is what the ideas mean. And I love wilderness as much as anyone. I've talked about this concept of remembering where we've come from as humans with regard to diet. And I personally find being in the wilderness, whether it's a, an ocean that's clean or a jungle or a forest. I think that's good for humans, right? Oh yeah, definitely. And, you know, we're not talking about paving the planet and destroying quote unquote. You gotta pave some of it. Right, <laughs> you do have to pave some of it. I mean, in order to get here where I am in Costa Rica, I had to pave, we had to pave some of it and that was good so that I could drive a car, but we're not gonna pave the whole planet. And I actually find it kind of ironic that people celebrate Elon Musk's, uh, you know, planned terraforming of Mars, and yet they just, they, don't, they have no, they have no problem, or they, they just don't want to impact anything on the United, in, in, in the world, in the United States, on our planet, on the Earth, on the planet Have you ever seen my on. tweet about that? That's no. one of my most popular tweets ever. Um, a friend of mine gave me the idea, but it was basically like, Elon Musk says we can make Mars livable, but claims that a two-degree warming of Earth will make it unlivable. What? It's, it's so crazy, it shows right? it's being this idea is being used for something else. It's it's not like it, it's it's kind of a it's just the the idea of well we shouldn't impact. Now I think Musk is a little more complicated the way he thinks of it because he is pro human impact in a lot of ways. But in any case, mainly it's just the view that it's wrong. Like people always want to show things that they think are immoral that they're going to be self destructive. That's always that's, that's a very effective way. I mean, every religion uses, everyone uses it, right? It's like, oh, if you do the thing, I, so one thing is I can explain to you why it's wrong and why it's bad for you. So you could, you know, you think about something like diet. It's like, okay, you explain and approach a diet. The main argument is if you do this, it's going to lead to good results. If you don't do this, it's going to lead to bad results. But sometimes that's a little more shaky. I mean, of course, any given diet could be wrong. But, you know, sometimes somebody wants you to do something, but it's clearly not good for you. And so they want to give you a reason why it's good for you. And often it's, oh, if you don't do this, you're going to be really, really punished. And that's a lot of what the whole global warming thing is. It's like, okay, if you do this, if you drive the car you want, you buy that SUV, you know, you have a thriving economy, like, okay, but then your, your kid is just, the earth is just going to be like the surface of the moon. 
And it's, it's like, it, it's, it's, but it's not, but it's really just, they don't want us to impact uh, the earth. And these are all, again, for the leaders, these are all just, they're all disguises for the anti-human goal that they have, because if they were explicit about the goal, they would have very few adherents. Can we talk a little bit about some of the predictions from the 1970s? You do a great job yeah, of in course. the book. But you do a great job in the book of sort of calling this out. And I, don't, I think that as humans, and I am guilty of this as well, we have a very short memory. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if I post something on Instagram, uh, I'm going to give away a secret now. I can repost it in 90 days and nobody remembers that I repost that I'm reposting something that I've already posted. And so to think back 50 years gives us a history, gives us a time frame. And many people listening to this are not even 50 years old. So I think it's just important that we trace, that we take a moment and we trace the timeline of predictions, the catastrophizers, these catastrophic predictions that have been made every decade for the last five decades, none of which have come true. And I think it's clarifying to to trace those a little bit to give us some perspective on where we have come from. I agree. I think it's very powerful as part of why it's the first chapter of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And then a lot of that stuff is I raise in the second chapter of Fossil Future. And I think it, particularly because we have this idea that, okay, the experts, the and I call them the designated experts, so the people that our institutions have told us, like, these are the experts, these are the people who stand for all experts, They're, these are the people who are right. Like, we are here, the designated experts say X, and it's like, it's understandable. You think, oh, well, I don't want to go against that. Particularly, I'm not a specialist in the field. And, but it's important to know, okay, what is the track record of these designated experts? What actually happens? And you look at it, it's really interesting. You can see from the 70s, with just fossil fuels alone, there's, you know, four catastrophe predictions that did not come true uh, at all. Although I'm going to argue that if your goal was an unimpacted planet, they did come true. And I think that's going to ultimately be the thing. So this is, again, they want an unimpacted planet because they just think it's the right thing to do. But they tell us that impacting the planet is going to lead to catastrophe. And that's what's definitely been proven wrong. But they still think they're right because they basically, oh, we impacted the planet and that's bad because it's bad. So that that's I think that explains both why they've been totally wrong and why they think they've been vindicated. Like they haven't, nobody's apologized, nor has the whole system punished them. They've actually elevated them. So you look at the four R catastrophic resource depletion, catastrophic pollution, catastrophic global cooling, and catastrophic uh, global warming. And even with global warming, now that's the one that they say has been vindicated, but catastrophic global warming hasn't been vindicated at all. A, because the warming is much lower than they said, but actually B, much more importantly, because we've become much safer from climate. So you have, I, I quote John Holdren, who, who became later after making this prediction in the 2000s, he became President Obama's top science advisor. He predicted in the mid-1980s that uh, rising CO2 levels could cause a billion famine-related deaths, like climate-related famine deaths. And instead, the world is far better fed, whether it's as healthily fed as we would like is a different thing. But in terms of just people being able to get enough calories so they're not malnourished in the most basic sense, yeah, there's there's we've had like negative the trend has been the exact opposite of what he said let alone a billion and you see this over and over so the resources didn't deplete we have more resources pollution went down there was no cooling crisis and there was no warming crisis so whatever you think about the future you have to admit these were four totally false uh, predictions and there's a question of why is this and it goes back to this now, sometimes called the delicate nurture premise or the delicate nurture dogma, the idea that nature 
exists in a delicate balance that is, that is, I call it stable, sufficient, and safe. So it doesn't change much. It gives it's sufficient. It gives us what we need and it, and it keeps us safe. And the idea is, oh, if, if there's that delicate balance and we impact it, then everything is going to go haywire and it's going to be ruined. And this is just not at all true. This is just a total faith-based crazy belief because it's totally contradicted. Uh, the reality is I call it the wild potential premise, which is nature is dynamic, it's deficient, and it's dangerous. And impact is we need to impact it a lot to make it better. So if somebody claims, hey, some impact is really bad, we need to look into that. But the assumption that any given impact is going to like destroy the whole thing and explode, that needs basically an infinite burden of proof. And these guys had essentially none, but they had the belief that it's immoral to impact the earth. And then this delicate nurture premise makes us think, oh, it's inevitably self-destructive. So it's like, we're doing the wrong thing. And then delicate nurture says, oh yeah, you're going to go to hell. And that's why this explains why these people have not been chastised by the leading knowledge institutions. They've been elevated. And the two reasons are one is in a, from their perspective, they're right. Because if the goal is an unimpacted planet, eliminating human impact, we did something evil. So even though the earth is much better for us by the standard of an unimpacted planet, it's worse. So that's one thing. And the other is as long as you believe in delicate nurture, you think that you were right. You were just premature. And so that's, that's, I think the attitude most people have, it's just, okay. Yeah. Maybe they're wrong about a billion climate related deaths, but you can't argue that it's coming, right? It's gotta be coming because we know that the earth is delicate nurture. And it's like, no, wait a second. What's gonna, like, how would that actually work? Like, are we going to be unable to grow food if we have a lot of energy is a more, is a world with more warmth and more plant food in the atmosphere. Is that going to prevent it? Was there no growth? When the dinosaurs lived, no, they had much more plant growth that made possible like brontosaurus. So it just, it's, it's, it has this dogma, but it has this, it's the worst thing because it's a dogma that has the, the prestige of science, but it just makes no sense uh, at all. There's a great quote. I think it was Donnie Vincent said it on Joe Rogan's podcast. Politicians never apologize. That is way for people to forget. And I fear that that is being made very obvious with COVID decisions that were made for COVID and with the environment and climate, like, like you said, no one has apologized. No one has been held accountable said and said, Hey, we spent billions of dollars doing this and it, nothing happened. Like this is the biggest nothing burger ever. Uh, and I, I think that it would be useful for people if we went through a number of those things that you talked about, those four premises, especially the warming and and I how ironic is it that that in the seventies they were calling for catastrophic global cooling, and they Nobody said remembers. Have this. So I posted this. Um, I post a lot of stuff on Twitter, by the way. So if anyone's on Twitter, um, you can check out my stuff. At, it's just my name at Alex Epstein. I posted about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago. Somebody else had shared this thing, which is this Leonard Nimoy video, warning about catastrophic global cooling, and I believe it was in nineteen seventy seven. And I included some new quotes I have from Fossil Future because I went back and what's crazy is if you look at the mainstream newspapers like The Guardian, New York Times, I think Washington Post as well was there, like Chicago Tribune, they're so confident in cooling like through the late 70s, like even one of them was the early 1980s. And one interesting thing is that it had often the same, it was also like, we're going to have more droughts. Like that was definitely one of the things. And it's like, wait a second. Okay. If it gets warmer. We're going to have catastrophic drought and just get, get cooler catastrophic drought. So it's again, this delicate nurture idea that, oh, it exists in this perfect, delicate balance. And so no matter what we do, 
it's going to be not only bad, but hellishly bad. It's impossible. And again, it is based on this false premise or this idea that the earth is not supposed to change. And, and yet anyone who learns anything about the earth's history and climate and the environment will quickly realize the climate is always changing. Yeah. People, there's this, this horrible thing happening now. People are being called, you know, names, monikers, climate denier, anti-vaxxer. And I hate these. Um, it's like, I don't think anyone denies that the climate is changing. The climate, it's not the same temperature today that it was yesterday, no matter where you are in the world. It's raining this afternoon versus sunny this morning. Like nobody's denying the climate is changing, but, but these, these, these derogatory monikers are so damaging because they just pigeonhole people. And essentially what you're saying is this person is a looney tune and you shouldn't listen to any of their ideas. Well, it's super I, so frustrating. It's, I, think, I think it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this because I used to be of the position that I won't use the term climate change denier because I don't like the denier part of it. So I'll, I'll say, I don't, I still don't like that term, but you know, cause it's well Holocaust denier, but then there's a question of is Holocaust denier a good term? I think it's a pretty good term. So, but why is it a good term? It's a good term because the thing it specifies is a clear thing. Like it's a coherent thing that you can put together. The problem with climate change denier is climate change is this incredibly ambiguous thing. And it's deliberately ambiguous because again, the climate is an inherently changing phenomenon. So if you're talking about climate change in the technical sense, what they really mean is global climate change. So a change, like a significant change in the long, in the global climate system over time, but it's not the right way to put it. So really what it's getting at is climate impact. Like, do we impact climate? But there's, when you're talking about climate impact, like if you said, well, you're a climate impact denier. Well, but climate impact is so broad too, because you could believe like me, we impact it, but it's not a big deal or it could even be good. It certainly doesn't matter compared to energy, which we're talking about sacrificing, or you, or it could mean you believe in a climate apocalypse, right? So climate impact could mean that. So in that sense, it's, it has the vagueness. It's, it's like way too vague. So if they did use the term climate apocalypse denier, I think that'd be fine. And I would happily go in it. I mean, denier kind of means you're denying reality, but see, if they called it like climate catastrophe or climate apocalypse, it's one of these things where they wouldn't get as many people on. It's all about disguising the viewpoint. In this case, it's, it's disguising the extremeness of the viewpoint that it's actually a, like a catastrophe or an apocalypse. So by saying, oh, we're climate change, uh, it's like, oh, that seems reasonable and scientific. Yeah, because of course we probably change climate somehow. And they're like, but then they smoke, then they bundle that with climate apocalypse. Now, interestingly, what the new move has been to be more overt and to actually use climate crisis and climate um, emergency. And I can see why they're doing it because some people, the people who really believe in that or want others to believe in it, they're like, we're not getting enough change with climate change. Like people aren't scared enough. So that was the danger. They wanted the packaging with the reasonable thing, but then they didn't get the extremeness of action. So now they're saying, okay, let's get, let's call it climate crisis. Let's call it climate emergency. I think Scientific American is now a joke of a title. Has they they officially call it climate emergency, and that is just a, a ridiculous. That's just a crazy thing in its own way because it. What does it refer to? Like you just look at the experience. Like where is the emergency? Like I'm in here, and I mean I'm in a nice part of California, but like what does that? Like how does that relate to a real emergency? Like a real emergency is, you know, your heart stops beating, something like that. So it's 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 interesting to see. But I, so the reason I brought this up in part is I have started using the term climate mastery denier myself. So 
because climate mastery, I think, is the key concept because it, it, it conveys that human beings can master the naturally dangerous climate through intelligent action, including, you know, producing heat and cold on demand and producing sturdy buildings and producing irrigation systems, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that most of climate discussion totally denies that human beings can master climate. Like with this wildfire stuff, they act like, oh, well, the wild, nothing we can do about wildfires. So if there's more drought, of course, it's our fault, even though California has 200 year droughts in recent history. But like, we're just going to throw up our hands and repent and do whatever Gavin Newsom wants. And then every, like, it's this crazy defeatist attitude. And that's climate mastery denial. Like, really, we can't prevent out of control wildfires. We can't build barriers. We can't log. We can't do controlled burns. I mean, what species are we talking about? And again, oh, we can terraform Mars, but we can't deal with out of control wildfires. It doesn't make any sense. So that's the sense in which I like. If you have a specific term that people are really denying, I do like it. So the, I just my view has changed on that. I'm not 100% convinced of that, but that is I, I do think denier is powerful, but it has to be used very judiciously. Exactly. And this is not a podcast about vaccinations or the immune system, but I don't like the term anti-vaxxer for the same reason. It's just like that that's a ton of people. And what are you talking about? Like does that mean that you're that, that an anti-vaxxer denies that vaccines are good for everyone forever or does it just mean that somebody actually had a child that was negatively affected by a vaccine and is calling into question whether there are potential negative adverse effects for vaccines that we should be aware of and that that we should not be uh, sanctioned for talking about. So that's a whole yeah, separate I mean, discussion. Well, that's a whole big issue. We might, we might, well, I'm not an expert on this, but yeah, I think it's, I think with, I would just say one methodological point for, for both of these issues um, is that you really want to be looking at are people carefully weighing the benefits and the side effects of different things? And I think with both issues, with fossil fuels, it's very unusual to have somebody who talks too much about the benefits, maybe some industry people. Um, but I certainly think with vaccines, um, so some of the people who are like critical of vaccines, I think are understating the benefits as I understand them. And certainly there are people who are pro vaccines who are just totally like, they have no interest at all in negative side effects or in any context for anyone. And that's an issue uh, too. And I think you should just, so I would just say as a methodological thing, like when you're looking at thinkers, just are they actually seriously engaging both the benefits and side effects? It's hard to do, particularly because if, when you're debating policy, you kind of always want to emphasize, like you think, you think one of them is kind of more important in terms of moving people in the right direction. It's, I have the same thing, same challenge at least with fossil fuels, because my view is everyone's denying the benefits of fossil fuels. So of course I want to focus on those, but I also need to look at side effects and, and the most important side effects of fossil fuels that need to be managed are not CO2. It's more conventional kinds of uh, pollution, but even then people catastrophize those. So it's, yeah, you just need to, uh, but I would just say when I'm looking at people, like when they really engage the benefits and the side effects and acknowledge both, then I tend to respect, then I tend to think there's much greater chance that they're right versus, oh, they give a really nuanced explanation of uh, only one or the other. I totally agree. Why don't we use that as a good segue to talking about the benefits and the risks of fossil fuels? Because you do a great okay. job in the moral case for fossil fuels enumerating the benefits of fossil fuels. And like you say, there's really, there are not many people talking about this and they're so, they're so, they're so apparent when you lay them out. The availability of cheap, consistent energy has changed the, the life of millions, billions of people on the planet. So talk about that for us. 
Sure. So let's, you know, if you're talking about a, like a livable planet, so I'll keep on that. So my view is that fossil fuels make the planet livable, like live life as we know it. So my, you know, if we go back to planet is not a delicate nurture, it's wild potential. It's, it's barely livable uh, from a human flourishing perspective. So in terms of the idea, if you want to live a long, healthy, opportunity-filled life, the natural state of the planet is not going to do it. It's like absolutely not going to do it. And it's certainly not going to do it for 8 billion people. And that's where we live right now, right? We live in it. So you could say, oh, I wish we all, there were only 100,000 of us and we could just be hunter gatherers. And what, well, okay, that doesn't exist. And to, to get that to exist, you have to kill everybody. Okay, so that's not on the table. So if you think about what makes it livable for 8 billion people and it's not naturally livable, you have to look at, okay, what's, what's the big difference? And I think the big difference everyone ignores is machines machines doing work for us. If you think of what a, what a machine does is machine produces value for us and it does it in at least two ways. So one is it amplifies our ability to produce things. So it, it produces for us by amplifying our abilities. So for example, like a modern combine harvester, whether or not you like, like the crops it's doing, okay, that can, that can allow one man to produce as much as 700 of the best manual labor. And it can even be one, you know, fat person. They don't even have to be that healthy or that fit. So you've multiplied the productive ability by 700. So this, I call this machine labor. Machine labor radically amplifies our abilities and it also expands our abilities. It allows us to do things that no amount of humans could do. So you think about like an incubator. Well, that can do things that we can't just get five of us together and then be an incubator, right? So we have all these machines that or like get a thousand of us together and fly. Right? There's no number of us that can do that. So what machines do is they, they radically amplify and expand our productive ability. That's why I say they produce value for us. So you, you, know, you could think of it as they produce so much of the value that exists in our world is only possible with machines. Well, how do we use machines? Well, the thing is, machines are not free. Nature does not give us machines. We have to produce machines including the energy to power the machines. And that takes time. So I like, I use in my next book, the example of a private jet, like private jet is amazing. Why don't we all have a private jet? Well, because the human time, the resources it takes above all the human time it takes to produce and power a private jet is far beyond what most of us can actually create. Like Tim Cook, yeah, he can create enough value where he can afford a private jet, but most of us can't. So machine labor is only useful to the extent it's cost effective. So the key to life is cost-effective machine labor, machine labor that we can produce efficiently enough so that we can, most people can afford it. And the key to that is that the energy powering the machines be cheap because every machine that we use not only uses energy itself, but is produced by hundreds or thousands of machines that themselves use energy. So you take like a little smartphone, like one of those cheap ones that's $100. Well, it's not just using energy itself. All the servers around the world are using energy. And then the hundreds of machines that mine the materials, process the materials, put them together, they're all using energy as well. So the lower you can get the cost of energy, and it needs to be consistent, as you said, on demand, like that lowers the price of everything. And the higher the cost of energy, the higher cost of everything. So if you want a world that's more livable, you want a world where machines are doing more and more work for us, and that requires energy being low cost. And I think this is all just totally taken for granted. People don't take, and the, the, the final variable I would say is the other thing that makes life so good is that not just machines, but that we have intelligent human beings engaging in mental labor. You know, you just think about nutrition. 
Like we need, we need human beings to have the time to think about nutrition, to discover things and to give good advice. Well, that's only possible if machines are doing most of the physical work for us. So I think that the two things that low cost, reliable energy does is they allow machines to do a lot of work for us and they free up a huge amount of human time. So it's machine labor and mental labor. They create this enormous amount of machine labor, which frees up this enormous amount of mental labor. And that's our world, a world of m capable machines and smart human beings creating huge amounts of value, allowing us to live at a higher level than anyone has ever lived. Yeah. And there are so many things that we take for granted today. I have a washing machine. I have fans. I have lights that come on, the power. And this isn't really possible without consistent, cheap, available energy, right? And so we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier in the podcast. Many, quote, environmentalists are even against solar and wind. But I also wanted to talk about some of the points that you've made about why solar and wind. Yeah, we should definitely are, talk about Are about pretty that. shitty energy because I think that a lot of the case against fossil fuels is we can do renewables. And some renewables... If you think of nuclear as a renewable, although you're destroying an atom, so I don't think you would think of nu nuclear as renewable, maybe hydroelectric, but everything I've read as I've begun to learn about this suggests that solar and wind are just shitty energy. So let's talk about that. Like, what is wrong with solar and wind, and why are these really never going to power us as humans, at least based on what we have today? Yeah, so I think it's important to know some of these details, but uh, but also, as we've stressed already, it's important this is a very insincere movement. So you hear claims about, oh yeah, solar and wind can do everything that fossil fuels can do. So there's a bunch that just strike you as insincere, including, okay, we need to force everyone to use them. Like, why do you need to force everyone to use them if they're so amazing and they're on the verge of this breakthrough? Like we need the government, like we need Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden to run them. Like, really, is that how really effective things are? There? Th that should be suspicious, but the most suspicious thing should be that the movement that supports them actually opposes every practical form of energy now and even opposes them. So you have, again, fossil fuels are opposed. Nuclear is opposed. Hydro is opposed. Hydro doesn't qualify as renewable under most classifications of renewable. Uh, because why? It's considered to have too much impact on different bodies of water. And by the way, who the hell made renewable a category? That's another thing where that's one of these anti-impact categories. Because it real in effect, what it means is low human impact. There's this idea of, oh, nature's going to regenerate it over. But there's no such thing as that in terms of a whole process of energy. You could say, oh, okay, the sun's going to be around for 5 billion years. Great. But all the materials you need to harness the sun are not renewable. And it doesn't, renewable is not a human term. It's just, a, it's a kind of religious term of, we want everything to just repeat automatically and replenish automatically. So that's, that's also suspicious. But so they're against fossil fuels, against nuclear, against hydro. And then again, there's a lot of opposition to solar and wind on the same anti-impact ground. So it's when, when somebody says, when you see a movement that's opposing all forms of cost-effective energy, including the one it advocates, and they feed you this fairy tale about, oh, it's all going to magically change very, very quickly, that should be seen as, oh, this is another case where they've got an anti-human goal, and they're trying to give you a pro-human disguise. And that's what I think of solar and wind. There is no reason whatsoever to be particularly optimistic or focused on solar and wind. And the you, the way I think the best way to get at this is you need to think of energy as it's a process. 
So energy is a process. It always involves taking some form of raw energy in nature and then transforming it into usable energy. So you take something like solar. So people think, oh, the sun is free. Isn't that fantastic? Well, you need a process though. That sunlight doesn't power your computer. So what do you need? You need a process. That process includes acquiring land, which could be quite valuable, particularly in sunny places. But maybe more importantly, you've got a mine for the materials for the solar panels. You've got to process them. Uh, you have to move them around. You have to build transmission lines because the, often the places with solar panels aren't the places where you need energy. And then most importantly, what you need to do is because the sun is intermittent, it can't, it's not controlled and it's actually off most of the time. And sometimes it's high and sometimes it's low. What you need is it needs to be continuously supplemented or substituted by a controllable source of electricity. So when you're looking at the cost of solar, you can't just look at the cost of the solar panels or even the cost of the solar panels and the transmission lines. You have to look at the full system cost. And when you look at the full system cost, what you find is solar panels are not very valuable because they don't replace the, the reliable power sources. They add to the cost of the reliable power sources. This is why where I live in California, our electricity rates are going up and we're still just 24% solar and wind. And we're already having these problems. We're also having blackout problems, which you can talk about. Uh, you see in Germany, you see in Denmark. What, what's happening is you're adding all of this wasteful infrastructure that's not on demand. So it's not, not very useful and it jacks up your prices. And the other thing that happens is, so this is the reality, right? This is the reality that everyone's saying, oh, this is amazing. Let's do more of it. The other reality is because it jacks up your prices, there's always an incentive to play what I call reliability chicken which is to cut down on the number of reliable power plants. Because again, the un, what I call the unreliables, they need reliables, but say you're California, you're like, okay, but let's, let's shut down a nuclear plant. Let's shut down a natural gas plant or four. Let's get away with that. And hopefully the sun shines enough. Hopefully the wind blows enough. And this is what happened in Texas, what happens in California, is we have these shortfalls because we're playing this reliability chicken and then we have a heat wave. And what do we do? We're like, oh, climate change. So we just have to do more of this right? Versus no, it is easy to have plenty of electricity for any situation. You just have reliable power plants. You make sure they're resilient, including, you know, weatherized and that kind of thing. You give them a reliable fuel supply. That's what you need to do. So this whole solar and wind movement, it's making our electricity more expensive. It's let, it's making it less reliable. And these problems get far, far worse as you try to scale it. So in the U S right now, we've got this, this horrific thing that scares the hell out of me. I was just posting it about it on Twitter today. It's called the, a clean energy standard, which is another euphemism. I mean, it, there's, I would call it like, I have a million wet other translations of CES, like crackpot energy scheme is one of them. I mean, this is saying, okay, we have 10% solar and wind right now. We have way higher costs, way lower reliability. And this calls for it going to over 50% in the next eight years. Like, this is absolutely, like, this is the scariest thing I've seen because it actually has a real chance of passing as part of a so-called infrastructure thing, which is ironic because it would make all of our infrastructure dysfunctional if we don't have power. And this just goes to show how deluded we've become about these unreliables and how successful this anti-human, anti-energy movement has been at persuading us, oh yeah, these renewables are great. So they've really, it's an amazing coup because it's a movement that hates energy that claims to have the cutting edge of energy. So hats off to them for that, but not hats off to, 
to the evil of it. And, and in particular, we need to condemn, I think, many of these digital tech companies who lie about being 100% renewable, which is a whole – I can explain how, but basically they just – they pay the grid to give them credit for your solar and wind and give you the blame for their coal. That's, that's how it works. It's just a total accounting fraud. But that has really – as much as anything else, convince people that, oh yeah, 100% renewable is good. Apple's doing it. Facebook's doing it. Google's doing it. Let's all do it versus no, they are totally lying. They paid the grid to screw you over and label you as a polluter and them as renewable. And let's get the hell away from this whole unreliable energy push. And isn't there also part of Biden's infrastructure plan for 2050 that 80% reduction in, in overall energy usage or something absurd like this? Yeah, so it's 80 per, the clean energy standard calls for 30%, uh, rather, sorry, 80 by 2030, that was the 30, 80% quote, clean energy sources on the grid. And if you run the, now that they allow nuclear, but the thing is nuclear is basically not allowed to be built anymore. It's effectively criminalized. So there's no new nuclear. There's virtually no hydro. We're actually shutting down uh, more nuclear this year. This shows how anti-energy it is. We're shutting down more nuclear this year in the U.S. than any other form of energy, including coal, which I don't think we should be shutting down the coal either, but shutting down huge amounts of nuclear. New York is already having huge problems because they shut down their plant. It's just, but there's no way to get to that number without at least 50% solar. And this is what I, I gave some of the math of that when I, I posted it on Twitter. Also, I have a website, energytalkingpoints.com, where I'll post it soon. So 50%. Like nobody does this anywhere. The only places that have anywhere close to these numbers have stratospheric electricity prices. And very importantly, they also have neighbors who bail them out. So you'll hear statistics about say Denmark and Denmark's, oh, 49% or 50% electricity from mostly wind, but Denmark is a tiny place. And so what they can do is when they have a shortfall, they can have one of their neighbors give them reliable energy, including electricity from fossil fuels. And then when they have too much wind, then they can offload it on somebody else. But that's a you can't scale that, right? You can't scale being like the, the your neighbors are your rich uncle and they just bail you out whenever you have a problem. And even then with those bailouts, they still have more than three times more expensive electricity than we do. So this green energy thing, it's a brilliant marketing thing because it's it's been portrayed as this futuristic thing, whereas in reality, it's a total, it's an active disaster right now. It's literally killing people. If you look at Texas, we could, I don't think we have time, but if energytalkingpoints.com, I go into that in a lot of detail. It's like, it's making everyone's life worse. It's killing people and it's presented as, oh, it's so exciting. And I just made a government study that showed it's gonna be really cheap. And it's like, what about my reality study that you said it was gonna be cheap and then it's way more expensive to even do it on a small scale. Again, the US is 10% solar and wind right now. We're already having these huge problems. And I think we also need to talk about this. I know you have to go shortly, so we're, we're gonna have to do a part two, hopefully. To me, it seems disingenuous. The media, every time there's an adverse weather event, the media <laughs> says, climate change. Oh my God. And, and you talk about this in your book. I've seen other people talk about this. It seems pretty freaking clear that the amount of adverse weather events is much lower now than it has been in the last 150 not, not years. The, amount of of a, the danger from it is definitely lower. Right. I wouldn't say the, the events haven't changed that much, which is itself news. Like if you look at, I should post this soon. I have some good quotes from the UN reports, which are basically like, I, I use it at the beginning of my new book, but I should post them soon on the UN. And the basic, um, in my, 
I should post them on Twitter rather, because it's the, the way I start out is like, read these quotes. This obviously comes from a climate change denier, right? Because it's saying there's not much change in hurricane, not much change in drought. And it's like, oh, no, this comes from the UN IPCC report. So it's – but this is something you can – how much sense does it make that without this, this primitive religious view that the planet is perfect until we ruined it? And, you know, it, everything was perfect and then we made everything bad. Like absent that, how much sense does it really make that all – I, it has to be at least very conservatively 99% of the climate impacts documented, quote, documented by media of, of humans are negative. Like at least 99, it's probably, it's probably 99.9%. But how often do you hear about, for example, oh, there's greening in Africa, right? How often do you hear about like multiple Am Amazon rainforests worth of leaf growth in the world uh, due to global greening from CO2? What about just fewer... What about the fact that heat-related deaths are far lower still than cold-related deaths? So I, I, I talked recently about, I think in a post, how this is just, does anyone really, like if you really think about it, do you believe the media are actually trying to give you an objective sense of how safe we are from climate? And I think if, most people think about it, they'll say probably no, but then you look at this statistic of climate-related disaster deaths going down 98% in the last 100 years, and nobody reports that. So we got 50 times safer and nobody reports it. You can be sure that they're not trying to get at the truth. And I've been publicizing this and I'm really happy it's become popular, publicized by more people. Like I think you might've mentioned Michael Schellenberger. Uh, he, or if you haven't, he's a great guy to look at. He has a new book called Apocalypse Never, Bjorn Lomborg, uh, Matt Ridley. Like I call us in, uh, energy humanists. Like we are really publicizing the fact that we are actually safer than ever from climate. And they're not going to be able to deny that forever. They're, I mean, they're again, they're climate mastery deniers, but I don't think it's going to work for all that long. I think their main secret was they, they positioned the debate as either you believe that we impact climate and then you're against fossil fuels and you think there's a catastrophe or you don't. And we've, I think we've shown, no, that's not the alternative. It's like, do what's best for human beings, weigh the benefits and the side effects, and the benefits of the side effects, benefits of fossil fuels far outweigh the side effects, including the climate livability benefits far outweigh the side effects, leaving aside everything else. And that's, that's just true. You can, you can claim different, people can claim different things about the future, but if people deny the present, why would you ever trust them about the future? And it's just, I can only think that because not everyone listening to this is a climate scientist and because people don't have all this information at their fingertips, this is the danger of social media, this is the danger of mainstream media, is that nobody knows what the reality of the present is. And that's why your voice and the voices of Bjorn Lomberg and Michael Schellenberger and, are so important because I think that I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to help people say, help people understand and see this is what's actually happening now. Uh, because people aren't going to tell you about the benefits of a carbon dioxide of 400 parts per million. And they're not going to tell you that the carbon dioxide has been much higher in the past. And there's no correlation if you look between warming. And, and you know, it's, there's so many little pieces here that we didn't really have time to dig into and fully unpack. I promise all of you listeners that, that I'm going to do a lot of podcasts on this. We'll go into many of these issues in more detail and look at these. And I'm, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm just like all of you trying to understand this for myself. And I think that that's something we should all do and should have the right to do as humans is learn about things that are not necessarily our, our section of expertise. 
without being told to stay in our lane. You know, I'm a physician and I get told to stay in my lane every, every day. You know, it's like as, as a human today, it seems like you are only allowed to, to talk about the one microcosmic thing that you studied in school. And if you have opinions on anything else, you're, des you're described as just out of your lane. It's crazy. So I'm, you know, appreciating your work so much, Alex. I know you have to go, but um, there's just, there's so much here that we could, that we could go into more. Any points you want to like bring this tie a bow on it for us? Sure. I think it's I just, just, I just tip of the iceberg. Because it is, it is, a, it's important that, yeah, oh, there are a lot of factual things I'm talking about that you can't verify all of for yourself. But at the same time, you can verify a lot of things if you just think about it logically. Like, okay, what is it like living in today's climate versus 200 years ago when we didn't have machines doing all this work for us? Like, you can think about that. And I think at the highest level, you can think about this distinction between a livable planet and an unimpacted planet. You know, a livable environment and unimpacted environment. Livable climate, unimpacted climate. And recognize that these are two vastly different things. And you need to decide for yourself what matters to you. And I think for most of you, it'll be you want the livable thing means livable for humans, very conducive to us flourishing. It doesn't mean you're adversarial to the rest of nature, but it means you want a relationship with it that's actually good for humans, which means, yeah, you got to kill mosquitoes, polar bears. You might want I love polar bears, but I don't want them very near me. Right. So you got to you gotta have to master, uh, you know, you have to master your environment, you know, and then dogs like, yeah, I, I chose to have one in my house. Like I really like him, so I like. Un but all these things are kind of unnatural, in the in the good sense. Like we're intelligently impacting things. So I think the the framework that I'm coming from, and then kind of the high level facts that I'm mentioning. I think anyone can validate that for themselves, and then also they can see that the mainstream sources are using a different framework, and that they are ignoring these very observable facts. And I hope that at least starts a journey of saying there's something wrong with the way we're thinking about this. And I am not getting the full context uh, from the mainstream sources. And so then I think once you start there, then you're going to become uh, a fossil fuel lover sooner or later. And down the rabbit hole you all go, because I've talked about with my audience all the time, the idea that when you see the mainstream media talking about epidemiology, most of people who are listening to this podcast will know they can say, oh, that's an epidemiology study. Even though there was a huge study, a mega study reported by CNN yesterday showing that Need is associated with worse health outcomes. I hope that most of my audience understands to ask, is this epidemiology? How is the media presenting it to me? And I want this podcast to be the beginning of you all falling down the same rabbit hole with regard to climate and the environment and the way we impact the planet and the use of oil and gas and coal and asking questions and then questioning when the media presents you with, there are wildfires raging in Australia. That's tragic. Is that really something that we caused as humans with fossil fuels? You know, uh, probably not. And, you know, there's always a new disaster, a new climate disaster, and it's always blamed on climate change, which is, of course, then linked to our impacts on the planet. And I think Alex's work and the work of so many others is really calling that into question. And once you begin to fall down those rabbit holes, you end up probably like me. You're just cynical at everything and going, my God, what is behind all of this? It's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, and just remember, like we are causing I mean, my view is we are causing an unnaturally lovable climate. So even if we were making the wildfires, the conditions a little worse, which I don't think is, is demonstrable, we certainly are making in general, we're much safer from that and from everything else, except when we allow the anti-impact people to not impact the forest and basically turn it into a giant bomb. 
Yeah, but that's that's a failure of that's a refusal to engage in climate mastery. That's definitely not fossil fuels part fault. It's the anti-fossil fuels people's fault. Agree. Thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate the work you're doing. I encourage everyone to check out your stuff. So you've got the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. You've got a podcast called The Human Flourishing Projects. And then give us the websites one more time. Yeah. And so there's so Twitter at Alex Epstein and then en- check out energytalkingpoints.com. And then to sign up for my mailing list, you can do it there or at industrialprogress.com. And yeah, thanks for having me. Great, great questions. Great conversation. I love it, man. Thank you so much.